everyone. I'm your host, Christina Laney Mitri, and welcome to Smart Living Hawaii's podcast, where we discuss smart homes and technology, sustainability, healthy lifestyles, and smart business. Today, we will continue our Sustainable Leaders series and have a talk story with Aaron Ackerman, an award-winning regenerative building design architect and builder of Hawaii. We will chat more about his innovative sustainable home in Palolo, talk about trending developments, communities, and consumer demand. Aloha, Aaron. Thank you for coming. Thank you for having me. Yes, and actually, we are here at your place. So uh, FYI, you may hear some roosters crowing in the background every now and then. Absolutely. (laughs) Also, well, let me begin. I usually like to start with a little quick short bio about you. So as the sustainable sustainability team leader at Bowers and Kubota, Aaron is a crucial leader in the firm's coordinating approach to environmental stewardship and is the lead on the major majority of the project seeking USGBC LEED certification. Aaron's most recent, recent accomplishment has been the Living Building Challenge on his own residence, which has been recognized locally, nationally, and internationally. In 2017, his home won the USA National Grand Prix of Real Estate Award through FIOPSI. And in 2018, he won the Hawaii Venture Capital Association's Island Innovator of the Year Award. And also in 2018, he won the World Prix de Excellence or something award. You got it. <laughs> um, sustainable development all the way in Dubai. Is that right? That's correct. So um, we are going to start with where you began, I guess. That's what I always like to do. So maybe you can give me a little bit about your background growing up that you want to share with your with the listeners. Sure. So I think it all began for me really uh, working every summer as a carpenter um, for a uh, local builder here in Oahu, uh, Brian Allen Construction, who really uh, exposed me to uh, the building industry at a young age. So from about 10 years old, I was on a job site learning how to frame and use power tools and put a house together. And that really kind of put the foundation under me for being in this industry, um, you know, after being a builder until um, my early 20s, after I graduated from college, I got into architecture and, um, and you know, eventually got into the green building uh, specialty. And so my foundation really starts as a builder, but now I, I have a more broad perspective as a designer, builder, uh, sustainable um facilitator and so usually um, I find that that really helps me to um, consider things that a lot of designers don't consider such as means and methods um, constructability um, you know accessibility to uh, the kinds of products and materials we have here in Hawaii and as well as just a more intimate um, uh, perspective about the kind of challenges and issues with construction and how much waste we generate I mean I've you know, I've, I've been the person at a young age who loaded those dumpsters. And so, you know, I've I, I seen it and I've lived it. And so that's kind of what I think has framed my perspective. Awesome. Well, this is pretty much where I think a lot of green building is moving towards is to, you know, reuse and repurpose a lot of the things. But we will dive into that after. Maybe you want to jump in on your family and your family life, because I know that's a big part of 
this home here. <laughs> it sure is. I mean, without my my family, uh, especially especially my wife, because she's a obviously a, a stakeholder in this project, and she has you know been at my side all the way through. Without her, the project wouldn't have happened. And in addition to my wife, would be uh, my mother and and my my father and all my uncles and aunties and everybody who's. Uh, stepped in my father-in-laws and mother-in-laws and everyone to help us you know whether that's um uh looking after the kids so i can you have how many i have three kids um all um them well two of them were delivered actually on the job site um but all three of them were raised um essentially uh throughout this project so my oldest boy is eight and i can gauge the age of the project by his age because we got (laughs) this vacant land and moved into a tree house uh, when my wife was about uh, six or seven months pregnant so yeah I, I hope we finish the project before he graduates from high school That's a, <laughs> it would really be disappointing otherwise but um but yeah so I mean the family has definitely been a, a key component to our success and um, the support that I've gotten and you know I, I really appreciate it and just um, humbled all, all the time by um, the fact that we have that opportunity to do something like this because of you know our, our family and, and our support so how is your wife with living under these circumstances or were you guys kind of like kind of grew up with this kind of lifestyle well we're, we're attracted to this kind of lifestyle and sort of the more country living I think we would live on a farm if we could um, and this was kind of the closest thing we could uh, get to doing that because we are town working folk as they say I'm, I'm an architect she's a, a nurse and so you know living out in the sticks wasn't as uh, realistic for us um, with the kids and trying to send them to um, you know good schools and be closer to our family um, so this was this was that compromise and you know it wouldn't have happened of course I I wouldn't have, have even ventured into it if I didn't have the the woman at my side that I do have but you know, even even with her being the solid trooper that she is, I mean, you know, any family who's who's lived in a construction site can tell you it's, it's you know, there are challenges to it. Anybody who denies that, I think, is lying. But, you know, there's <laughs> been... <laughs> but, you know, um, fortunately, when you build a living building, um, because we don't use toxic chemicals and materials that contain uh, red list ingredients, it's actually not as... Um, dangerous i would say to be occupying a building under construction as it would be with uh, more conventional materials and products that off-gas volatile organic compounds and other things and so you know i've I've seen that you know side of things uh prior uh when i was working construction and i've been hot boxed in rooms that are just you know toxic environments and um so you know uh, i think that the project was allowed us to to be able to um live through it and and it's, and it's been an adventure and i think my my kids hopefully will grow up with a unique perspective i think they will for I sure mean, it's, it's been it's been fun awesome so i see how you got into green building and everything like that would you say that most of your inspiration is here or are you getting a lot of things coming because you have a lot of new products, you have a lot of new things coming in that are very efficient and eco-friendly. Are you bringing a lot from elsewhere coming in? Or is it like a lot of things that you're trying to do locally? Well, the goal was to try to build with as many regional uh, local materials as possible. Of course, here in Hawaii, we don't manufacture 
or make a whole lot of things. And so uh, what that turned into was a uh, mining of uh, regional waste stream materials. And so really wanted to look at what was replicable process for uh, intercepting waste stream products and materials that are going into our landfills or going to H power to be burnt or in some cases being bundled up and shipped back to the mainland. So that was about 75% of the materials we used on the project. The remaining 25% was to uh, support the latest and greatest innovative technologies that exist out on the market. And so partnering up with um, leading manufacturers who produce you know, energy efficient and water efficient technologies and also have uh, sustainable practices all the way down to their packaging and how they treat their employees. So we really look at it holistically and definitely want to showcase those companies and those technologies and partner up with them. And that's what we've done. So anything that would contribute to our net zero goals for the project, we're looking at those new technologies because the old stuff just doesn't really cut it. Um, but, you know, I think we've proven a point here that um, when we can build something that's as high performing as well as beautiful and inspiring out of all of this regional waste that we have, uh, just kind of, I think, changes people's mindset that this is really a resource. We shouldn't be throwing it away. Yeah. Well, I know some of you may know about his project and some of you may not. So maybe we can just wind it back a little and give an ex um, explanation of the Living Building Challenge that you have started eight years ago. Is that right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so everybody knows, and then we can dive into a little bit more after. So could you um, break that down for everybody, what it is, where it came from? Sure. So, you know, I've been practicing at Bowers and Kubota for 15 years, and it really, when I started there, um, U.S. Green Building Council had... Uh, just been coming out with this program called Lead Leadership in Energy and Environmental Design, and that is really the current benchmark that most federal and state-funded projects have to target for their performance, and it's really a prescriptive path of performance. So if you do certain things, the assumption is if you design and construct a greener building, that it will be a greener building. The missing component there is the uh, building owner or user actually being engaged to uh, take ownership of the operation of the building. If they don't aren't engaged in the design process uh, and take ownership of the operational side uh, of the um, project, then you won't actually see or realize a greener building. And so what the Living Building Challenge came along, which was authored by the International Living Future Institute, a man by the name of Jason McLennan uh, wrote this program. And it was really kind of just this dreamy, idealistic uh, version of what a building could could be like as far as having zero impact in fact going beyond net zero to net positive which is creating a positive impact in its construction uh, and its operation and so this program called the living building challenge um, just pushes the gas pedal all the way to the floor from uh, performance metrics you have to be net zero in your energy consumption water consumption your um, treatment of wastewater and stormwater that is um, produced on the site. Um, and then you have to account for your carbon footprint through the construction of the project and offset it, um, as well as an ecological habitat exchange uh, equivalent to the size of the development in which you invest in a land trust to set aside um, land conservation for nature. So every single aspect of the project is looked at and, and um, how you can essentially land at net zero or net positive. And so 
um, because of those thresholds, it's pretty much impossible to get a certified building without um, the building owner or users being engaged because at the yeah. end of the day, they have to uh, deliver that performance. And so that is a really big difference between a lead and a living building. Um, and one of the reasons why I was attracted to the, the program. The other aspect to it is that it really gets into qualitative elements. And these are things like biophilia, um, human health, human equity. Um, and so these things are very important because at the end of the day, qualitative building materials and components and systems like photovoltaics and solar panels, they don't inspire people. I mean, they inspire people who pay bills, but beyond that, they don't really motivate humans. Um, it's the qualitative elements of green buildings that motivate humans and really produce those uh, positive uh, results as far as human health and well-being. And so these are important elements to design architecture and green buildings and the living building challenge really highlighted that and made it uh, an intentional uh, requirement so that designers have to look at qualitative elements and be strategic in how we address that side of development so who else has taken on this challenge besides you <laughs> is anybody else doing this well in hawaii very limited um we actually uh, had one of the very first living buildings that was ever certified. So the Hawaii Preparatory Academy on the Big Island, their energy lab was, I think, the third certified building in the world. Program's been around for a little over a decade, so it's not exactly fresh out of the oven, but you know, there's still very few, maybe just a couple dozen projects that have been fully certified, and there's maybe, I don't know, um, three or 400 registered projects, but this is a growing movement. You're seeing projects emerge all over the globe. Um, people that are looking to define their projects as being sustainable really have to think about the Living Building Challenge. It is the most stringent, the most progressive and um, sort of prestigious green building program that exists out there. So there's a lot of projects that are trying to pursue it or have tried to pursue it, but you know I have seen a lot of projects also um, uh, give up at the feasibility stage and just, um, you know, it is challenging. They, the word challenge is intentional yeah. when they named it. So you really have to, uh, you know, be committed and, uh, and um, chase after the vision and just see it through. So for you, you've been doing this for eight years. Um, at what point would you get it certified? I mean, I know that you are somewhat almost done and you have to close out building permits on certain things, right? But in mm -hmm. general, when we're here, and you'll see some clips, and well, I know that other people are working on some videos that will also add to um, links that we can add to our site and everything like that to kind of get a more visual of this place. But it is almost complete, I mean, to some extent. I mean, I don't think it's yeah. ever going to be complete. Well, yeah. But for turning in something to get certified, is it right. is it almost there? Or you've got a few so, years? So, yeah, I mean, the construction is substantially complete. Um, you're right. A living building is probably never complete because if it was, it might. I guess it would die. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, living things require... Um, ongoing um, maintenance and um, fine-tuning to perform at their most optimal. Um, but the again, uh, one of the big differences with a living building and, say, a lead building is the uh, accountability of the performance. And so 
Um, unlike most green building programs, which certification is granted after construction is completed, um, the Living Building Challenge actually requires that you prove your performance. And awesome. so you have to have 12 months of consecutive net zero performance wow. that you can demonstrate. And um, the team has to, the design team has to come up with the systems and measurement and verification equipment to be able to uh, produce that proof. And so um, what we're looking at is, is essentially when we have all of our systems up and running a 12 month period after that where we have to be net zero and then we can get our audit completed and uh, get our certification. So let's talk about the different energy sources that you have here Mm -hmm. or that you're working on. Yeah, so we're trying to look at the energy side and and, and tackle some a little bit more innovative applications. Um, You know, this project is a demonstration case study. So any opportunity I had to try to delve into some new technologies, I wanted to take it. So what we're trying to do is, you know, we will have conventional solar panels to account for the majority of our energy load. Um, But we are also bringing on a vertical axis wind turbine that will generate some energy, um, you know, when when the wind picks up, uh, say, at 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 night in the the sun isn't out. you know, we can still be generating some energy. We're even looking at micro hydro. So what is um, that? that's a uh, small little water wheel, essentially, that, um, you know, you've seen the, the big uh, water water uh, hydro turbines that work at dams or um, sort of, I guess, in those um, homes on the on the on the river. Um, this this is a miniaturized version of that. And so um, our rain catchment roof will collect the rainwater down at the shop and it will um, dump it into our water cistern under the deck. And before it enters the cistern, it passes through this water wheel and will actually generate some energy. So really trying to just um, study how effective these technologies are, what kind of um, maintenance goes into operating them. And, you know, goal is to be net zero. And so you know, if we can diversify how we're collecting our energy, then that's just going to help us achieve that goal. So, okay, let's move into waste management. What kind of things are you doing for waste management here? Well, waste waste management can be broken down on a project from all the phases that go into a development. So it really starts in the design process, looking at what kind of building materials you're going to use, um, what happens at the end of their useful life so a lot of products out there are deemed uh, last forever or you know lifetime material well that's great as long as it's in in use in a building but once that material becomes outdated or seen as a fad and it gets thrown in a landfill it's not so good that it lasts forever doesn't break down right um plastic and these kinds of products we're seeing those negative effects so everything from uh, material selection to uh, modular building design, making sure that uh, we dimension things to try to minimize fall off. Um, There's a lot of waste that goes into the dumpster before the building is even completed. And then there's the uh, construction phase where uh, all the waste that we generate, we essentially have to try to recycle about 90% of it. And that's really challenging um, here in Hawaii where, you know, certain materials can't be recycled. Um, there's actually a, a global epidemic right now about recycling because um, China is essentially rejecting a lot of the um, recycled 
materials that have we been sent to. there mm-hmm. because uh, they're disappointed in uh, the quality of the materials that are coming in. Essentially, we're not um, separating the recycled um, materials in our blue bins um, across the country. And it's called wishful recycling. People just kind of don't know whether it's recyclable or not and throw it in there hoping that it will get recycled. Um, and then beyond the uh, construction phase goes into operational phase. And so um, we need to account for all of the waste that we generate as a family mm-hmm. living here. And so we look at recycling, of course, um, you know, things like aluminum and glass and plastic and cardboard and paper, um, but also our food waste. So we do vermiculture. We have worm bins that uh, break down the waste, uh, our food waste, and um, generate uh, uh, like what they call worm tea. And it's um, good for um, treating plants. And then um, also just, you know, trying to minimize packaging and single-use kind of products that gets into a whole other realm. Um, but, yeah, so really it's a holistic approach of how to minimize waste. And, you know, I think just the concept of this building using all waste materials in the first place, 75% of the building built with waste materials and then anything that was kind of created in the uh, byproduct of building the building you know, we were also uh, recycling. So in the end, I think we've we've really shined. And that's one of the things I think the project, um, uh, why people are interested in this project and, and how it's dealt with uh, waste management issues here in Hawaii. So what about, I know in the very beginning when we first came up, you were talking about the water, um, man, how you're managing the water. Could you give them a rundown of the runoff and how you use it and everything like that? And in those mm. big, you know, water catchments and yeah. what you do with it. Yeah, so it's a good question because, I mean, typically on green building projects, energy is a little easier one to accomplish. You know, most buildings can can get solar panels on and some other technologies to try to get to net zero energy. When it comes to water, um, it's a lot more complicated. There's a lot more jurisdictional challenges. Um, There's a lot of laws and ordinances that actually make it illegal in some cases to harvest and drink your own water or treat wastewater on site. So uh, it's a lot more complicated to try to accomplish. Um, It also requires highly paid professionals who are licensed to be involved at every step of the way. And unlike energy, water is relatively inexpensive here in Hawaii. And so... um, having it pencil out economically can be challenging as well. So what we did was really try to tackle these issues and pave the path for um, other project teams. And we were the first project in the state to get a, uh, be approved for a pilot study with the Department of Health to uh, treat 100% of our wastewater on site where we're on a property where the sewer lateral is available. So there's a law um, here in Hawaii that says if a sewer system or municipal sewer lateral is available to the parcel that you must connect to it. And the idea there is that it's uh, distributed costs shared by the community. So if the city has brought that infrastructure to your property, you need to contribute to it. And so what we did was we approached um, uh, the Department of Health and Environmental Services and said, hey, you know, we're willing to contribute economically to the system. We'll pay the connection fees and ongoing maintenance charges. But what we'd like to do is uh, investigate the science around safely uh, treating wastewater on site and using it for subsurface irrigation for non-edible 
or you know urban agriculture purposes and so we work with them and we have an aerobic treatment unit on site that essentially uh, treats 100% of our black water and gray water on site um, and uh, sends it subsurface through drip irrigation to irrigate some uh, planted zones and we're growing things like Hawaiian soapberry or soap nut tree that um, uh, will creates this natural detergent that we can actually bring back into the home and, and wash clothes with. And uh, I think my dog is messing up your podcast. <laughs> That's his, okay. Uh, bringing things in with his uh, jingly collar, but we're going to work through that. So um, all of the uh, water that goes into that wastewater treatment system was originally rainwater. So the house, the, all of our potable and non-potable needs come from rainwater. Um, we also have a border water supply connection that we can tap into if we need to, but essentially we're trying to be net zero. And so um, the water is used potentially three times before it irrigates a plant. And um, we also have rain gardens on site that will absorb any storm water that falls on the building that isn't absorbed already by our uh, vegetated roof gardens. And so everywhere that we can uh, celebrate water and uh, conserve water, we're doing that. Hawaiian culture um, understood that water was probably the most essential thing. Hawaiian word for wealth is vai vai. And we know that um, everyone in Hawaii is familiar with the word vai, which is water. But what that meant was, you know, wealth was water, water, essentially, right? So Hawaiians knew that without water, you don't have anything. Mm-hmm. And um, I think, unfortunately, we've, we've lost that um, connection to that resource as far as how important it is because the price of water is so cheap right now. And even though you see water water supply increasing rates every year, um, you know, it's still relatively inexpensive. Um, but if, if all of a sudden our, our groundwater was compromised, you would see massive increase in the cost of water. And all of a sudden people would realize how precious this resource is, especially how um, isolated we are as an island state. Yeah. And you see that when everybody actually gets a whole bunch of bottled waters when they shouldn't <laughs> when there's a supposed hurricane coming well and look at how expensive that bottled water exactly. is if you do the math it actually costs more than gas yeah and so um, but that's that goes to show what the value of water is if we don't have it the way we have it <laughs> exactly so but where we are located is in pololo and it is on a slope i mean it's a pretty steep slope so everything they've done here you said it's about six acres worth of land on a slope. So they've, it was just empty land. Is that right? And you pretty much built out everything here, right? Pretty much. I mean, it was vacant land, deemed vacant land. That doesn't mean there was nothing on it. There were some structures um, on the property. Um, there were actually some liability structures that weren't permitted that we had to um, remove. Um but for the most part, it was a vacant site. There was a tree house, kind of a shanty tree house that was here that we lived in <laughs> for a few years as we were working on the designs and kind of researching the program and really kind of getting our ducks in a row to pursue this project. And while we lived in there, I was able to study the hydro- natural hydrology of the site um, so that the designs would be responsive to that natural hydrology. We didn't use any heavy equipment. We didn't excavate. We didn't 
violate the land in that way. And, you know, there's a lot of developments that don't do that. And, and in fact, here in Palolo, we're probably one of, one of the most um, famous um, uh, valleys for where that was not done well. And lately in the news, it's been showing up down on Wild Mountain Road. You're seeing properties literally falling into the ground. Um, natural hydrology wasn't respected when those developments were done. And, you know, water's going to flow, whether you, uh, you, you know, want it to or not, it's got to find its way from the mountain to the sea. And so when you disregard that natural flow, there's consequences. And so that was one thing we did. We also looked at mapping out how, um, the invasive species that had already kind of taken over the site. So over the years that the site had been used for various farming um, purposes, but as those came to an end, uh, invasive species took over. And so by mapping out where the invasive species were and where the productive legacy urban ag opportunities were as far as existing trees and plants that would already contribute to that program uh, for food generation, we limited our uh, the footprint of the building to where invasive species were. So the, f the entire floor plan of this building was it's really dictated yeah. by uh, previous you know invasive species on the site. And um, essentially that, that's what's helped to create such a unique uh, form uh, for this building. Yeah, and then could you list some of the, I guess, foodscaping type of uh, plants that you have here on, on your whole property? Yeah, I mean, we have a lot. Um, everything from lychee to coffee, uh, noni, longon, I talked about the Hawaiian soapberry. Uh, we have avocado. We have uh, Okinawan potato. We have cassava. Um, I mean, it's there's just so much that's growing. It's actually hard to uh, harvest. harvest it all. Yeah. You have to really put a lot of uh, effort into you know when when it when it rains it pours right. It's like everything kind of fruits at the same time. But yeah, we have a lot. Um, there's a lot of opportunity here. We have mulberry growing on the site. Um, so, you know, the ability to try to live off the land, it's there. Um, we were talking earlier about um, kind of the, the pigs, and um, we have, you know, a few families of pigs that, that come down every night. And so, you know, we could even be um, uh, generating some, some meat from the, from the land. So, yeah, I think our urban agriculture program is pretty robust. Um, even our roofs are medicinal, so we have native Hawaiian loa'e uh, growing on our roofs, and um, it's a soilless system that absorbs uh, stormwater as well as help to uh, have kind of an external insulation for our uh, building to keep it cool and protect the roofing. And um, Hawaiians would actually make a tea from the loa'e root, and it's an anti-inflammatory. So, uh, you know, you could basically uh, consume our riffing. <laughs> and then um, what about the, I guess, vegetation that you have coming off as, as more of a shade? Oh, okay. So, yeah, you're talking about the solar uh, uh, sunshade awning. So um, we tried to avoid any um, south facing openings or glazing um, this kind of confronts your typical desire most people in Hawaii to um, have openings and views of the the city's sky, the um, skylines and and your ocean views and those tend to be on that south side um, we are per, uh, passively cooled naturally ventilated 
home. So because we're having net zero energy goals, we didn't want to air condition the space. Um, it's actually very comfortable here, and a lot of the trees provide so much shade. So and of course you're up in it's all greenery up here. So I mean we are in the middle of summer. <laughs> so yeah. So and we do you know sometimes you can't avoid it. We do have some areas where we have glass on the south facing sides, and so where that occurs, we put these sunshade awnings up. And what we did was um, I salvaged a bunch of uh, steel gratings that were originally part of a mezzanine for a car dealership, and um, basically repurposed them to create these. Uh, awnings over the openings and then propagated uh, Spanish moss or what we call Pele's hair here in Hawaii and um, it's an air plant and basically it creates this solar curtain that sits off the building about three feet and it just cuts that solar heat gain so it doesn't hit the glass and so it's a natural and beautiful way of kind of addressing passive cooling strategies it's like an outdoor curtain (laughs) it sure is yeah and it grows on its own it's kind of neat but yeah, it's um, another feature that they kind of incorporated in a lot of things. So you'll see a lot of these in the quick reel that we'll put together. But like I said, we'll definitely have some links of so you can see everything that we're talking about. If um, <laughs> Because I know it's, it's a sight to see. They do have tours every now and then. Um, maybe we'll have to set something up in the future if we get a lot of interest, but I know it's, it's taxing on their whole family. So, <laughs> well, you can also visit our project website. So livingbuildingchallengehawaii.com and, and I'll be putting up, you know, links there as well for all of the ongoing, um, you know, things that we're working on with media, outside organizations. Yeah. So people can kind of, you know, get a, get a sense of, of the project if, even if they don't make it for one of the tours. Yeah. So Um, The other thing that I wanted to dive into, which is um, the specific, I guess, products that you're using in the home that are very innovative, that are probably not seen here in Hawaii, um, but maybe you can talk about a few of them. I know like some of them are just, you know, ceiling fans where you think, you know, why I'm sure a lot of these products are very expensive and they're kind of in the initial phases for a lot of things. So you may not... It may not be for everybody's budget, but to see the trends is really, you know, where it starts. And then from there, they kind of break it down to where, you know, the masses can get to. So it's kind of neat to see these type of products here. So maybe you can run through a few of them in your home that are pretty innovative. Sure. So I think you were kind of talking about the ceiling fans that are made by big ass fans and they're called the Haiku. They are a premium product. They're you know, probably one of the more expensive ceiling fans, if not the most expensive ceiling fan you'll find. Um, what do they run right now, just out of curiosity? Do well, you there's 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 different, different versions yeah. if you want to have sort of the uh, integrated LED lighting and smart uh, technology that is they call SenseMe technology, which has occupant sensors in them and uh, various controls that you can even uh, operate from your, your iPhone. Um, and they they have features such as uh, I talked a little bit with you about um, this little whoosh setting that actually um, it, it it changes the frequency of the fan so that it sort of ramps it up and down and to to be more like a natural breeze flowing through the the house and so these are uh, biophilic elements to try to um, create more of a natural setting which humans respond well to um, they find that. Um, we actually 
increase our range of comfort in naturally ventilated spaces versus air-conditioned spaces. So what that means is if you're in an air-conditioned building um, and the temperature swings just a few degrees, you start to feel that and you become uncomfortable. Um, we get conditioned to that regulated um, air quality. Um, but in naturally ventilated spaces, we have a broader range of comfort that that um, we can exist in. And so, um, yeah, th these fans are unique. They're um, uh, designed like a propeller of an airplane. So they use airfoils, not blades. So blades are flat and most ceiling fans are consist of five blades. These ceiling fans have three airfoils. They push more air than any other fan on the market. They're more energy efficient. They have integrated LED lighting. Um, and so because we weren't going to go with air conditioning or mechanically cooled, uh, we thought we should invest a little more in the passive cooling uh, technologies and equipment so that we would actually execute natural ventilation well because yeah. there's nothing worse than um, not executing that and having to revert back to air conditioning when you right. have a house that maybe or a building that wasn't designed for it. Um, there's other other technologies that, that, that we've used out there in other companies that have supported the project. Um, I really would uh, recommend to the listeners to go to the project website and look at the, the various products that we use and, and the companies that we partner up with because there's so many of them who are producing um, uh, just great building products and not all of them are premium. Uh, a lot of them are competitively priced, if not cheaper than uh, their competition, but are greener products that deliver red less free um, ingredients. So essentially non-toxic assemblies and uh, just perform really well. Um, MaPe makes a uh, a suite of different products for waterproofing and for a lot of your masonry needs. Um, we've also worked with Mohawk, who has the greenest carpet on the on, on the planet right now. A lichen series that um, we uh, put throughout the the bedrooms of the home. And so, yeah, we, we've been blessed to have uh, great companies uh, work with us and to showcase those technologies. That was what this project was all about. Okay, so I know you're telling me, you haven't installed it yet, but you were telling me about the uh, the faucets, the um, shower heads. Could you tell, tell us a little bit more about those? Right, so we have the, uh, there was a startup company called Nebia that um, emerged in the last uh, year or two. And it was essentially a group of engineers um, who, who took it upon themselves to reinvent or revolutionize the shower head. So, you know, it turns out the shower head has been around for decades and it really hasn't changed much in like the last 50 years. So what these guys did was they looked at nozzle technology that NASA was deploying for spacecraft and they took the, this nozzle technology and they created a revolutionized shower head that um, covers your body with essentially it makes droplets of water in the air. And so it's like, I guess, being immersed in a in a cloud of water and it covers more surface area of your skin with water while using 60 percent less water. Um, and so we're utilizing these shower heads to help us conserve our uh, water use so we can hit our net zero water goals for the project and the valves that um, supply water to these shower heads um, are made by Charming Water and they're um, an innovative uh, technology 
with a little display screen on them, like a little LCD dis display screen. And so as the water flows through the valve, it powers up that screen and it reports back to you how uh, long you've been showering, how many gallons of water you've used, what the temperature of the water is. And so the idea is really giving the homeowner or the building user more information on a live feed as far as how much resources you're, you're consuming and um, and how much resources that you have on site, right? So if you want to actually live a net zero lifestyle, you can't be waiting for your energy bill or your water bill to show up a month later to see if you, you know, and then did that well. figure out where it was coming from. Exactly. <laughs> right. So which yeah. kid in the house knows? <laughs> right, right. And, and as you walk up the stairs, if you look out the window, you see a uh, a water cistern which has all of the water for our potable needs, and there's a level indicator old school uh, little cast iron weight that that slides up and down um, with a float inside the tank and so it visually tells the occupants how much water you have stored at any given time so as you leave the house and you come home every day you you see how much you have and then um, you know water saving fixtures everywhere and down to when you're taking a shower you're also conscious of how much you've used so it's all about increased awareness and you know I think for families and you know i remember growing up and my mom would be like turn the lights off money doesn't grow on trees and you know uh, turn off the water when you're brushing your teeth and those kind of things well but it's a bottomless pit right i mean you don't know what where does it end i mean you, there's no visual there and so i think what we're trying to do is um create these visuals create this intimacy between the the resources and building utilities and then the building occupants so i hope that our kids grow up with a little more awareness and just you know i think they'll have a lot more more, more awareness and conscious level yeah <laughs> yeah than most kids do because they don't you know they're not going to see the same stuff that we see so um it's pretty awesome so do you feel like oh yes it's raining and you guys get all excited <laughs> when your water catchment's probably getting full <laughs> well yeah i think anybody who who lives off the grid would feel that way but especially you know if you're chasing a living building certification it could be a little stressful and a drought <laughs> um you know we're in palolo so it rains every day so i mean we're blessed and you know, if you're doing a living building in nanakuli your whole building design would be different, yes. right? I mean, you wouldn't see a vegetated roof garden on a roof because you really need to collect every drip of water that falls on that site and store it and try to make it through the 12 months, mm -hmm. you know? So uh, one living building is not going to look like another depending where it is. The yeah. priorities change. And that's the beauty of the program is it, 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 it suggests that architecture needs to respond to the environment, mm -hmm. right? And so that's what it's all about. Yeah. Well, maybe a couple, um, we have a few more minutes that we can talk about. I know I did want to chat to you about some other trending concepts that are going around, um, not just here, but maybe nationally, internationally. And I know that the other day we were on the phone, you were mentioning uh, more of like the community-based developments and how you see that possibly solving some problems or some you know solutions here for Hawaii and our build because I know in Hawaii we have um, affordable housing that we need to tackle here all the way from homelessness to actual building for regular people for rentals or sales just so we can survive but um, maybe you can dive into that and explain the community developments that maybe you see going on. Yeah, so I think what we were chatting about was really about kind of that community scale. So it's really village 
uh, approach to development. And so there are things that we've showcased on this project that I think at the single family dwelling scale are tough to pencil out. You know, I talked about how challenging it can be to put a net zero water system together and actually have that uh, pencil out economically. Um, but if we look at these technologies and we were to apply them at a more village scale, say a, a um, wastewater treatment system that managed all of the homes on a given street or a block, you know, and we take that scale and implement it, we actually can see economic uh, savings and um, have systems that are a little more palatable for folks. And how it applies or in the affordable housing equation, you know, our biggest challenge here in Hawaii with affordable housing is the price of the land, right? We don't have a lot of land, we have a lot of people. And so it's uh, really tough to deliver affordable market rate homes or um, when the land is so expensive. And so developers struggle with that. And if they look out where the land is cheaper out in the sticks and the boonies, uh, the challenge there is there's no uh, not enough utilities uh, that you know offered by the city to support that development, and so when the developers have to bring that infrastructure out there, there's a lot of cost to that, and so again uh, they end up with a high cost of the development, and then you can't turn it around at an affordable price. So some of these technologies may have a place um, in tackling these this equation because we could look at a uh, property that's maybe further outside of the city that doesn't have infrastructure. But if we look at village scale and community-based developments, we could have some of these technologies that would help to um, deliver you know, affordable market rates at the end of the day. But that takes a lot of planning, commitment, and essentially we're talking about community you know, living, which, which is how... We used to do it. Used to be, right? <laughs> I mean, so be, like, I mean, if we want to be fully sustainable, that's that's kind of what I think we need to do. Yeah. So, um, have you seen this anywhere else right now, or is anybody being really successful at this at this point? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I'm gonna struggle to to cite um, the examples, but I mean, this stuff is. You want to see examples? Just get out of the first world country, uh, right? Yeah. I mean, you're gonna see it happening naturally. Um, but I think, uh, you know, just in our own backyard, I mean, Hawaiians did this. They, they say that our population at one point may have been up to, I, I've heard as high as 800,000 people before Western intervention. And can you imagine 800,000 people living here without Costco, without Matson and, right. and Young Brothers? How did they do that? Right. Um, obviously they had. Uh, system. a system that was a lot more responsible right. than than what we have today and so you know I think it's a no-brainer I mean I think community development does work um, but it does take visionary um, leaders and and developers to kind of piece that together yeah so I think that that will be coming like when you do these type of projects and people are starting to see it and um, this community base I think will I think someone like you are creating this as a home, single family. I think the next step is people creating these community bases. I mean, I was on doing a podcast with Alea Bridge and some of their goals are to, you know, put a community base together for 
you know, homeless situations where they can be working the land and they can have that community that they're wanting, that they're already kind of creating on their own, but it be more sustainable, you know, and it be in a place that's safe and an environment and a place where they can thrive versus, you know, need to be, you know, they can do it internally. So, I mean, I could see these things starting to happen here. And I think it'd be really neat, just like we're looking at what you're doing that that would be a community base that we can kind of observe as well. Um, I did like what you were talking about on, I think this will be kind of our closing, but how you were talking about health and well-being as being, it's almost now a trend because we're seeing that it's what's needed for that safe haven to go home to, you know, or to rejuvenate or to replenish yourself at is your home. So that's becoming not just the eco-friendly home that you're looking for, but that your home is also a place to be at peace and have this certain lifestyle, you know. So can you explain a little bit more about, I guess, that trend? Sure. So you, you said the word eco-friendly, right? And, 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 and now we're looking at, well, what is human-friendly, right? Yeah, human-friendly. So um, the Green Building Movement started off with, I think, at a place where it's like, what's better for the environment? You know, and how do we make decisions that have less impact on the environment? And now that that's becoming more common practice, we're looking deeper, right? So what's better for humans? Uh, how do we approach the mental and physical health of humans because we spend so much time indoors up to 90% of our lives are spent indoors and that means we're totally impacted by the spaces we occupy and if those spaces are not healthy for us we suffer mm -hmm. and if they're healthy and inspiring we thrive and one of the things that mm, there's a lot of science behind is this concept of biophilia and if you break that word down essentially uh, phobias are things that we we fear and philias are things that we are drawn to or that that we love and so the the term biophilia is really uh, this hypothesis that humans have an innate draw and connection to nature and um, we are part of nature so um, this is this is kind of common sense uh, but I think that with new technologies and with our smartphones as our kind of outlet um, you know, people have lost touch with, with nature. And so the idea is to develop um, buildings and an architecture that um, evokes this kind of same um, sense or feelings that we get when we, you know, go for, for a hike or a walk in the park um, or, or, or go down to the boardwalk and take that stroll, that sunset. Why do people do that? You know, it's because it's it makes them feel good, right? It, it's restorative. You kind of... A break from the daily grind of looking at a computer screen or, or a phone or a tablet. And so uh, we can do this with architecture and there's a lot of different uh, strategies and approaches out there now. And that was one of the things we wanted to demonstrate everywhere we could, having biophilic elements and, and um, biophilic features in the building design. And, uh, you know, uh, this is something that, that I'm, I'm getting more and more passionate about. Um, I've been um, trying to design green buildings for, for a bit now. And, you know, I've come to realize that, quite frankly, solar panels don't inspire folks. Um, they inspire the people who pay the bills, but they don't inspire occupants. It's biophilia and, um, you know, buildings that really um, 
really have those elements that of biophilia that inspires people and, yeah. and when people well, you are also inspired, have a lot of art throughout your home as well i mean they've you can't see it because we're on a podcast but there's a lot of work that has been put into the home that has purpose yeah and then there's like the cultural and the art aspect to a lot of it which you also see when you go to his website or look at some of the videos but they do capture um there's a meaning to every bit like we're sitting right here in the living room space and the entire floor is could have just been cork because that's what it is but there's a spill out of a lot of tile work could you explain this tile work that goes out well yeah so one of the requirements or what the living building challenge calls imperative and that's because they're imperative to this idealistic vision of you know how buildings can be one of the imperatives is beauty. And beauty, um, as they say, is in the eye of the beholder, right? Mm-hmm. It's a little harder to define. It's uh, um, subjective in that sense. And so it's, it's, um, it's, it's hard to define, but important nonetheless that we look at beauty. And, and beauty a lot of times is, um, is something that responds to culture and and sense of place. So what one culture sees as beautiful may not be beautiful to another culture. So it's about really being timeless in our designs. And so what we try to do is look at beauty, how we could um, create beauty everywhere we did. So in these murals, you know, they're really trying to, what we did was we took um, outdated tile samples and used tile and, and tile that was uh, leftovers from construction fall off and I worked with a fabulous artist uh, um, named Maya uh, Portner who um, helped me to piece this stuff together in, in such a beautiful way and um, you see these biophilic installations throughout the house we celebrate the flow of water cascading down the stairs we have a dandelion that's being blown out and 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 um sending seeds across the the counters and we have uh things like abstract forms like leaves and sticks and the movement of energy and air and uh, flowing through on the ground and so um, there's flickers of of light and and um fire coming off of like flames coming off of the fireplace even when there's no fire in it and so it's everywhere we could do that. We we tried to celebrate these biophilic elements, and you know it's it's. I do the tours, right? And so I I see how people respond to these things, and it's proof is in the pudding. I mean, I see that it actually does evoke happiness in people, and and it um it, it just it works, and so um, that's what we did. Yeah. So it's like their floor is a masterpiece. It's like a mosaic, really. And it's, it's, it is really neat to see because not only is it a piece of art, but it was used, it was reused and repurposed from something that was thrown away. So that's awesome. I think we are about out of time. So I just wanted to wrap things up and thank you, Aaron, so much for opening your home to us at Smart Living Hawaii. And, um, I guess that's it. That's all I have. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast at www.smartlivinghi.com. Also follow us on Instagram at at smart underscore living underscore Hawaii and like us on Facebook. Mahalo and until next time, live smart.
Thank you. Thanks for having me. And uh, you can also check us out at bowersandkubota.com. See all the other great projects that we're working on. Aloha. Mahalo.